0: Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition as we do every week. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West is Adam Stanko. And every week we go long form with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA. And Jeff Zilgit is our guest today, who's been at USA Today since 1995. So we'll talk a little bit about hoops, a lot about life and what goes on off the court. And Jeff, as I have over the past... Number of years, if you as you've battled colon cancer for the past five years, when we're in touch, I'll say was today better than yesterday. So that's where we'll start. Is today health wise better than yesterday?
1: Yeah, it is, Noah. Thank you for asking. Uh, Without a doubt, I've you know I've always uh, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, Different people will use it, but whether it's blessed, fortunate, lucky, a combination thereof, uh, I've. You know, come along at the right time for some kinds of cancer treatments that didn't exist 10 years ago. They barely existed five years ago, Noah. Mm-hmm. And so I've been on the right side of the timeline when it comes to that. And so uh, today, certainly better than yesterday. Uh, and without question, today, certainly better than when I look back at even a year ago when I was just finishing some radiation around this time, or even going back to three years ago, I'm not sure I would have been able to do this conversation with you if it was during a chemotherapy week. Uh, It Mm -hmm. was, as people know, it's brutal, it's grueling, debilitating, and I I sometimes look back, and I don't think it's the same smartphone, uh, but some weeks of chemotherapy treatment, I would look at my step count. There were days where I didn't hit more than 100 steps. The best I could do is bedroom to living room, living room to kitchen, you know, kitchen back to bedroom. Uh, that was that was my day uh, sometimes. And so when you take it the totality where I am today compared to where I was, uh, you know, post surgeries, post chemotherapy treatments, uh, you know, it's uh, I'm quite fortunate to be here talking to you guys today.
2: As I was reading. About your diagnosis and and, and researching everything you had been through and came across, you get diagnosed with colon cancer, 2015, spreads to the liver in 2016, spreads to the liver and abdominal cavity in 2017, spreads to the liver in 2019. Needs need radiation treatment. You just describe how hard some of it was. How do you manage during those times? Your professional responsibilities, your your family responsibilities, and just keeping some type of positive attitude through it all?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Adam. So uh, I I guess I'm going to tackle it this way. And and I know this, I I apologize for what sounds like a cliche, but there were times where it was literally, and I just mentioned my step count. It was literally just put one foot in front of the other and and get through today, tackle today, see what happens tomorrow, and, and... Don't worry about so much about tomorrow as just getting through that day. But then if you want to talk about attitudes, uh, you know, I I do think that there's just a survival instinct that pops in as well, that you're going to do anything necessary uh, to try to live. And and this is, I laugh about this. Uh, You guys are the parents. I felt like some days, you know, my wife made sure I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner no matter how I was feeling. Now, I talk about you guys having kids. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for me, I felt like whether I was uh, between 6 and 15 again because uh, breakfast was sometimes uh, waffles with syrup out of the toaster. Uh, you know, we weren't making anything. Uh, lunch was sometimes mac and cheese, in uh, old-school mac and cheese. It was nothing homemade. And, and sometimes dinner was chicken nuggets or pizza. Uh, it, it was the most comfort food. Uh, that you would want if you were sort of a teenage, teenager. And, and then the next part of it is, all right, make sure that you have good doctors. That, that was a large part of it. Uh, you, you know, I learned early on that Dr. Google was not your friend. And mm-hmm. That's no offense to Google, but, you know, stay off the Google machine when, when you're trying to research this stuff. You, you find things that you don't want to find. And so the people you listen to are your doctors. Uh, Don't get caught up in the percentages. You're not going to like some of the numbers. Uh, It's going to make things worse. So listen to the people who who are treating you and and, and find out that your case may end up being part of a statistic, but it's not a statistic right now. So let's not worry about that. And then, and this part makes me, you know, both happy, it makes me sentimental, but the outpouring of love that one receives from family and friends and, and strangers and co-workers and colleagues and, and, and across the board is, is overwhelming at times. And that, that helped, you know, you, you need a, a good tight circle of people without a doubt. And you need caregivers and, and my wife and, and close family members played that role. Um, but But that kind of love that you feel uh, it was unimaginable to me up until that point. And and so when you're talking about having a positive attitude, uh, getting through each day, each week, each month, um, you know, that's what counts. And and look, I'll share this quick story. My wife maybe even posted a photo of it. You know, I was due for about a hundred, you know, six months of chemo. So 180 days. And my wife put together a chemo calendar uh she took an old uh you know one of those shoe racks that hangs over a door mm-hmm. and she converted it put numbers on each you know spot where a shoe ostensibly would go and inside that little slot each day was a small gift oh. uh you, you sometimes it was funny uh sometimes uh it, it it was you know absurd uh you know sometimes it had some meaning to it but those are the kinds of little things that you know and big things that happened that got me through uh those periods and i know that's a long-winded answer
0: (laughs) do do you remember any of those specifically that made you laugh any of those gifts from the 180 days
1: (laughs) you know the one i always got a kick of and i still do it today uh, whether what, no matter what your thoughts are on scratch-off lottery tickets,
0: <laughs> um, you,
1: you know, look, you just like uh, when you gamble, you're going to come out on the losing end. But whenever there was a, a little Lotto ticket in there, it just brought a little smile on my face, it reminded me of my grandma. Um, right. you, you know, she used to buy the the scratchers, and and I used to get a kick out of that. Uh, I can't say we won anything more than Noah and Adam than you know a ten dollar prize all right here and there but uh you, you know there was just something about that that you know brought a little smile uh to my face but there there were tons of them in there there was you know whether it was a pair of socks uh a pair of boxers uh you, you know uh, again they were mostly little things uh you, you know maybe a, a piece of uh you know fly fishing equipment uh that mm-hmm. I really enjoyed uh, a new fly uh to use at some point uh that they all had uh you know some kind of meeting in the moment
0: Jeff, you said how important it is to find good doctors. How do you know when you have good doctors?
1: (laughs) All right. I'm going to tread lightly here. (laughs) (laughs) You know when you have a bad doctor. And I think you work from that point. Okay. Right there. Um, And and so let me make this overall uh, sort of assessment on what, if you're listening out there of what you should be looking for, if you find yourself in a similar situation, it doesn't have to be cancer. But the places I've found the best are if there's some combination of these three things, a practicing hospital, a teaching hospital, and a research hospital, because there they're always going to be on the cusp of the cutting edge treatments. They're going to be looking at it themselves they're going to be finding one of the next clinical trials that are moving toward FDA approval, what's early on in clinical trials. They're going to be teaching, you know, soon-to-be doctors. And, and so they need to know the current topic and situation, and and then when they're actually treating patients and seeing results. And so those are the three things that I'm looking for, Noah. Now, and Adam, it may be you don't find that those things are particularly near to you. Uh, but let's just sort of go around the country, and, and, and maybe it gets a little harder once you start really going uh, west of the Mississippi in, in certain areas, but, you know, there's a huge swath of the country that's a, where these places are available to you. Um, and, and I don't want to name them all for fear of leaving something out, uh, but when you're doing your research, and sometimes it may be a day trip, um, but when you feel that your life is on the line, you know, day, day trips really aren't that big of a deal. And, mm-hmm. and so you make that effort to go to a place and, and find these places, um, you know, and, and then, you know, you start doing your research, finding doctors, you you know, who, who are investigating, you know, your particular cancer. Here, here's one example, you guys, and, and this makes me naive. I thought chemotherapy, the actual chemo, I thought it was just a catch-all for a, a single drug. I didn't realize that there were a variety of chemotherapy cocktails. I just until you get yourself in the situation, you don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and so I didn't realize that you know for colon cancer, here's the tried and true treatment that they've been doing for the past fifty, sixty years. And so this is what you're gonna do. I didn't realize that that combination it was like a three-drug cocktail. I didn't realize that was just basically for colon cancer or some other intestinal cancers. Um, and that If you have breast cancer, um, if you have even a pancreatic cancer, um, you are going to get treated differently. And I didn't know that, but when you start researching it, you, you start to really fine tune what you're looking for and where you should be going and some of the places you should be seen. I realized that not all of this is easy. It's not accessible to everyone. But I go back to what I said when you find your life is on the line that you, you start finding these places and you, you you make the effort and sacrifice to get there when you can.
2: Jeff, anybody that listens to you speak, whether it's this podcast or anywhere else, they pick up instantly how, how positive of a guy you are. Um but you you just mentioned it. Your your life is on the line. What was the scariest day for you?
1: I think the, there's probably a couple that come to mind. So after colon cancer diagnosis, um, and I'll just describe it, I had my colon removed. It was the best option for me, and it left me with a 10 to 20% chance of a recurrence. And so, you know, you can look at this in different ways. Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I, I I talk about the odds and and looking at the numbers, you know, 10 to 20%, you just sort of like your numbers. If you're going to fall into the 80% group, but I'll also say this, if you're in a room of 10 people and one to two of you are getting picked, like that really changes the odds a little (laughs) bit, you know, you're like 10 people in a room, like you feel your odds of being picked are a lot better than 10 to 20% in that situation. Mm -hmm. And and so it happened and, and with. And that's where I think it's the scariest, Adam. Is, and that's where I made mistakes of looking at Google and you start looking at metastatic cancer uh, survival rates when it spreads to the liver, and you don't like the numbers at all, and and it's terrifying. And you just think that you know the end of your life is inevitable In, in, in the short term. We all know it's inevitable, but. You think it's going to end much sooner, and I know that that happens. You well, know that, that's life. I, I'll share this one real quick. I may have wrote it, Adam, it know you may have seen it uh, in one of the blog posts. Uh, but there's a movie starring Molly Shannon, and it, I think it's called Other People. And the son, the Molly Sh- Shannon's character is diagnosed with cancer, and the son is sitting on top of a car, chatting with a friend of his, and you know, saying, "Well, this is something that happens to other people." And uh, the friend looks at the son and says, "To us, you are other people." And I think we all become other people in one way or another throughout our lives. You know, something happens to us; we, we become that person. And, and I hope it doesn't happen to anyone. Uh, you know, it's later in life when we get a little bit closer to that point uh, in everything. Um, but that—that's some of you know what I look at in terms of being the most scariest. And then the Second time, it had spread to my liver, um, you know, almost a year later. And it was a pretty big blot of tumor on my liver. And, you know, surgery wasn't really an option. And and so I'll describe this moment to you guys. And this part sort of sucks, is I get a call. I'm covering the Celtics-Cavaliers playoff game in Boston. It's a Friday afternoon, close to 5 o'clock. It's probably an 8 o'clock start. So I'm getting ready. To leave my hotel room, I definitely have my, uh, I'm tying my tie. I get a phone call. And, you know, the one interesting thing about my subsequent diagnosis is I didn't feel poorly. My first diagnosis, I felt poorly. I knew something was up. The next time it was spread to my liver and my abdominal cavity, I felt fine. I didn't know anything was going on. So I was expecting the results of a scan to come back pretty good. And they did not come back pretty good at all. And I get this message uh, from a nurse, and it, it's five o'clock. It's Friday. I'm away from home. Uh, you know, I, I I I probably wore out a track on the carpet of the hotel room, uh, just walking back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing all kinds of things. We're, we're going to have to do uh, this tricky surgery that uh, you know we, we basically kill half your liver. Uh, that where the tumor is. So that your uh, other, hot, you know, your liver regenerates, and so it's going to grow a little bit more. Um, and, and these are all kinds of scary things. And here I'm thinking, I'm just having cancer. I'm continually getting cancer, is my thought. 2015, 2016, 2017. You know, the inevitable is that you're going to keep getting cancer, and eventually, it's going to kill you long before uh, you wanted your life to end. And so, Adam and Noah, those were probably the two scariest moments. Um, but then you settle in, uh, you let that sort of wash over you, you start talking to your doctors, you start talking to people who know things, um, and you find a path forward. And I realize that that path forward uh, doesn't always work out for people. I, I'm fully aware of that. Uh, I, I can tell you, you know, this isn't the scariest, but some of the saddest moments. You walk into a cancer lobby of a hospital, it's depressing. You sit in the chemo i call it the chemo lounge. You're sitting within three to five feet of people who who are getting chemotherapy right next to you. You know, it, it's it's just an awful scene, and and I think you add up all those things, and, and you know, again, depressing, um, and scary, and somehow though, every person in that room, and sometimes I would get choked up, every person in that room is fighting for another day what they're going through. And uh, it was also, you know, inspiring to me to watch that. Uh, and I will just make a note uh, that oftentimes, whatever my complaints were, and I saw someone who was a lot older than me shuffling in there to get chemo, to live another day for whatever reason, man, it moved me. And so, you know, I did what I had to do uh, to find my way out as well
2: it's so moving and your story is so inspirational um for sure and i'm i'm always so happy when we get to speak to someone who who has an inspirational story to share because i know there's people out there either fighting this or they have friends or family that's fighting we you know we all know know someone in in the battle and uh and your your story is is remarkable when you're in a situation and 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 you know your life is is in the balance potentially How does it change your perspective in terms of everyday life and and your overall outlook?
1: All right. So you're going to hear this again and a a, a brief apologies for a cliche here. Um, And I felt guilty about some of these things. I think the good majority of us have perspective on life. And, you know, we try to distill what's important and what's not important. And Mm -hmm. this is just an off-the-cuff one. But I used to really stress out about making sure I made pregame availability, the night of a Wizards game, and making sure I got to Scott Brooks's availability at 515. That really doesn't matter to me anymore. Do I need to be there sometimes for my job and to do the job the way I want to? A hundred percent. But you do start to find out, you know, and I, the way, way I felt guilty is I should have, you know, I should have always thought this way. But that's also not the way life works. And I'll say it in these mm-hmm. terms, too. There are always life-changing events in a person's life that makes them see life differently and have a different perspective. And it's not always what I'm sitting here talking about today. It is graduation from high school or college. It is uh, a relationship, either ending or getting married. And then having a child, and then in some cases, a marriage, and then in some cases, it's a parent down. Like these are all major life things that happen that do give you a different perspective on life. And so that's probably what happened with me, things that maybe I thought were important. All of a sudden, became really unimportant. And, you know, not worth stressing over It doesn't mean I didn't get stressed There was one time coming home from a Wizards game It was sort of sleeting out Uh, I was crossing a bridge from D.C. into Arlington And I got a flat tire on the bridge And there's really nowhere to pull over And I'm I'm having a little bitty meltdown I crossed the bridge with the flat tire Pull over, call my wife And she's like, it's a flat tire Call someone, we can get it fixed now we can get it fixed tomorrow. So it doesn't mean I didn't stress out over things that weren't important <laughs> uh, or, or that things that weren't important. Don't get me wrong there. Uh, but at least, you know, you could see that uh, a little bit. And, and that doesn't mean I take my work life any less important. Um, it, it's just that I sort of distill those things and find out what are the most necessary and important things uh, when you're going about uh, your daily life and, and You know, that's how you sort of figure that stuff out. But I I don't think that's any different from, you know, other people in those other situations that I'm talking about. You know, again, having children, the milestones is what they are. And and I think those milestones, uh, you know, help bring perspective to people's lives. And it it happens to every one of us. And it certainly happens to you guys uh, that I'm talking to now in this conversation with the stuff that's going on in your lives.
0: You spoke so eloquently about what, it, you know, how important it is to have the love from the folks in your family, extended family, friends, and then strangers. But specifically in the in the NBA community, you worked with Sam Amick for so long at USA Today, and I mean, I I still miss the podcast, the A to Z podcast. You two together, and oftentimes you two spoke so personally, and it's actually something that has carried over into how I speak with Adam and Adam speaks with me on, on this podcast that we always add in a little bit of life when, when we do have our, our podcast together every week. Could you touch on the significance of having a, a teammate and friend like Sam as you're going through everything?
1: Yeah. I mean, here's how these things happen. And I certainly had, uh, you know, some personal friends, uh, you, you know, that, you know, Work, my work friends, uh, you know that I knew from college, that mm-hmm. I knew from home, those kinds of things, and th- those friends were always still there for me. But when when you're in this work life, sometimes you're communicating with that person more than your everyday friend, your normal friends. I mean, Sam's right. a normal friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you guys okay. get the point. You, yeah. Your non-work friends, you communicate with that person all the time, and both Sam's wife. And my wife would joke that we probably talk to each other some days more than we talk to our spouses, mm-hmm. and that's just the nature of the job. Sometimes, you know, Sam and I communicated extraordinarily well when it came to work life, and what that leads to is a friendship. And you know, maybe Sam couldn't call me one day because he had a you know a kid who was sick, but then the next day we would talk about that. And so all of a sudden, that person who becomes a, a co-worker, uh, who is a colleague and a co-worker, becomes a dear friend, which is what I consider I considered Sam then and today. And it, so it, it was, you know, I, I. it's hard to put a value on those kinds of things. Other than that, you know, how do I repay that? You know, not only to Sam, but to others. And, and I can only say that I can repay it by doing the same kinds of things that they did, you know, and again, Sam would cover for me work-wise if, you know, something happened, you know, that normally I would take care of, you know, those days where I could barely get out of bed uh, to do something, uh, you know, one of them, I think it was one of Jabari Parker's injuries. (laughs) and It came across my phone and I'm in bed. And if someone had asked me to write two paragraphs on Jabari Parker, Injury in that moment I don't think I could have right then and there Like that's how weak I felt Was Sam available To do that? Of course he was But then it extends beyond that You know in in terms of Just having a friendship of someone who is Calling uh, to see how you're Doing regardless of work And you know that ultimately Is where Sam and I's relationship You know it, it got to that point that you know the work stuff, yes, it's a lot of fun, um, and we enjoy doing this and working together, but then it really became about okay, what's going on in your life? what are you guys doing? uh what's going on with the kids? how are you feeling uh how how is how is your wife? How is my life? you know all the kinds of things that uh you know a friendship is about, and it became someone and and I like to think vice versa. And it happens to this day that you can trust to confide in, you know, at the time, you know, a scary situation um, that maybe not the entire public knew about. Obviously, you guys know my wife and I were open about it. Um, but, you know, in, in the moment, not everyone may know those things. Uh, but Sam certainly did throughout.
0: We'll have more from Jeff after we tell you about betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag, and use the promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, LOCKEDON, for a 50% welcome bonus. And if you want to focus on the NBA, I've been pushing the Nets-Celtics Christmas Day pick'em early. Been pushing that. Been pushing it before the season even started. I still like it. As early as you can get it. I think the Nets are going to be all over the Celtics on Christmas Day. Plus, the Damian Lillard future on betonline.ag mentioned it in the predictions episode of rejecting the screen. Lillard at plus 1,600 for MVP, that's value. So don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in the action. Use the promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-ON, LOCKEDON, and get a 50% off welcome bonus with your first deposit. Your online sports book experts bet online. Betting on the NBA doesn't have to be a guessing game. If you just listen to the new Locked on Bets podcast hosted by your boy Q and handicapping expert Lee Sterling, your boy Q and handicapping expert Lee Sterling give you the daily picks quick hitting advice to make the smartest possible wagers without wasting your time on anything else subscribe to the locked on bets podcast brought to you by betonline.ag wherever you get your podcasts
2: Jeff you are in addition to someone who's who's gone through these battles obviously a, a very talented writer distinguished personality within the the NBA community and certainly the NBA media community as a national writer we we hear oftentimes about the beat writers guys just covering a one specific team as a national writer. I'm curious, what's, what's the biggest challenge that maybe, you know, the average fan wouldn't think about when you have to cover the entire league. And that's considering also the, the situation that we're currently in dealing with the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, one of the early things you learn in, in this business is the value of relationships and, and sometimes, you know, having, you know, setting some professional boundaries on those relationships while still maintaining those relationships. And and that's really what it comes down to. And so the challenge is, is let's just say, you know, and, and today my partner in crime is Mark Medina. Um, and, and the way this has sort of worked is since I'm based in the East Coast, Mark is based in the West Coast, and so is Sam, is that, you know, there's a semi-split of the league. Jeff, you take the Eastern Conference, Mark, you take the Western Conference, and let's go from there and And try to maintain those relationships, try to stay on top of the news that's happening within those teams, uh, and not all things are equal. And, you know, I'm trying to think of a perfect example today, um, and I won't name teams, but I may have a better relationship with one team than I do another team. And that makes it a little bit more difficult. Uh, I may know the front office personnel a lot better in one city than I do in another city. Uh, And that's incumbent on me to try to make those relationships work, to try to put forth a little bit extra effort. And at the same token, the challenge is you guys know how many national writers there are and how many good ones there are. They're all vying for that person's time as well. And that GM and that uh, assistant GM, they have a full-time job, and it's not talking to me all the time, although some of you out there listening may think that that's all they do. Uh, you, you know. But that's, that's a part of it. The challenge is making sure that when your boss asks in the morning, and this is a current example, of, and this is a credit to Shubbs, who does a, a fantastic job uh, covering the NBA with his insider knowledge, is, Jeff, what's the latest on James Harden? Here's a story I saw in The Athletic what do you know about this? What can you add to it? Um, you know, is there anything new that you could bring to the table? And that puts on, you know, forces me to, you know, put on my reporting hat, start making some calls to people and see if there's anything out there that does set new light on the James Harden situation in Houston. And if there's anything that we could report it. And, and I think that's the challenge for a lot of national writers in terms of the news. And then the next challenge is, is as a national writer, you're not there every day, even on Zoom. And so the player that you're trying to talk to or the coach, they see the beat writers there every day. And they certainly recognize that being a national writer, your reach is a little bit different um, than the local writer. And, and so, you know, they they do understand that. Um, but they also don't have that same relationship with you all the time. And so it makes it a little difficult to, you know, sort of, pull the kind of feature insider stories uh, that you're trying to work on. And, you know, building that trust and rapport, though, throughout a season, multiple seasons, uh, a playoff run uh, is invaluable in making sure that, hey, if I need to get Quinn Snyder on the phone to talk about Rudy Gobert's contract extension, that that's possible, that Quinn has some familiarity with me and that he feels comfortable giving me a call on a Sunday night Uh, to have a little discussion on Rudy Gobert. And I think those are the things you're looking for as a national person.
0: Jeff, you started at USA Today in in 95. What were you covering at the time? And then what was your first NBA assignment?
1: Yeah. And so really it was a little bit of everything at the time. Noah and Adam, you look back at 1995, you know, the internet is really in its infancy stages at that point. And so I, I did a, a little bit of web publishing. I did a little bit of writing. Um, I, you know, I, I did a little bit of coverage of uh, uh, college athletics. And, and so it was sort of a, 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 a multi, uh, you know, you multi-discipline uh, kind of job. You did a little bit of everything uh, at, at that moment. And so I think my first, and I'm going to forget the year, first MBA assignment was the, uh, all-star game in Washington, D.C. Um, so I won yeah. the same
0: early 2000s. I think 2001.
1: Yep, all right. Now, that was my first NBA assignment. Um, but really, I didn't start getting more NBA assignments until some years later. So between that sort of period of 2001, 2008, continued to do a lot of NFL, sort of as a general assignment type person. A lot of NFL, a lot of baseball, uh, a lot of uh college sports, you know, covered a lot of Final Fours, World Series, Super Bowls um, during that run. That's sort of like a general assignment backup uh, writer as well. Sometimes in the Super Bowl, you know, at USA Today, I was probably, you know, eighth in line. So I had to find, you know, my job that day was to find the eighth best story, but make it sound and write it like it was the best story yep. of the day. And then by 2008, uh, you know, I was covering the NBA with some regularity. And then by uh, the start of the 2010 season, it was a full-time beat for me.
2: When you're trying to develop relationships and get to know people in front offices or coaching staffs or players on a deeper level, what was some of the, the best advice you got from from fellow veteran reporters and writers about sort of how to do that and, and foster those relationships?
1: Yeah. Uh, Be professional.
2: Um, It's not going to be a friendship. Not everyone is going to
1: like you, and that's okay. I mean, not every personality clicks. You like to think that everyone's going to like you, and that's (laughs) not the case. Um, And so you're going to have to, you know, find your way around those situations. Um, You know, you're not going to click with everyone, and that's quite okay. But you keep working at it. And as long as you're professional and, and you're fair, you know, you don't always have to be I think this comes from a Bob Ryan quote, um you know, about being objective. But you're not I mean, just inherently we're gonna have, you know, our biases one way or another on certain things. But are you fair? And so if you can answer that question, yes, I'm fair even if I'm critical, you know, you're gonna gain the respect of the people you're covering. Uh they they understand that criticism is part of my job. And so if you just continue to show your face Ask questions when you get one on one time, you know, make the most of that time. And, and then over the course of time, they're going, you're going to develop those relationships. And those are going to be the people that you rely on. Now, so some of those people come and go. You know, a, a GM job isn't forever,
0: mm-hmm. a coaching
1: job isn't forever. And so you need to, you know, continually work those relationships and, and hold those relationships. With different people at, at different times, and you know, um, you know, think about today's NBA and coaches. And I'm going to get to a part here in a second. Is Rick Carlisle, Eric Spoelstra, are the two longest tenured coaches after Greg Popovich, I believe. I think they came into the longest tenured coach with one team.
0: With one team, um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. yep. And, and and so you know. They come and go. There's new coaches all the time. But the other piece of advice, Adam and Noah, is is you're going to have to be yourself. You know, that's one thing. I I don't think I've ever tried to fake who I am um, in this situation. Um, And and I think that's helped me uh, with some relationships. Um, You know, I've I've never tried to be something I'm not. Uh, You know, my interest outside of basketball are my interest, uh, and, and, and they may not line up squarely with a lot of basketball, Twitter, you, you know, uh, I, you know, how, I don't know many other writers who are fly fishers, you know, they go fly fishing, um, you know, I, I'm going to like the music, you know, bluegrass is not a popular genre, an NBA Twitter, but that's going to be my music. I'm going to listen to Americana. Uh, you know, that, that's who I am. And, you know, that's how I think this works. If you like other things that i that are different from what I just mentioned and that's true to who you are, that's perfectly fine as well uh you know, but being true to yourself is important, and also understanding that as you grow old, and this is certainly the case now uh I, I don't know if I could necessarily say this you know fifteen years ago uh I'm certainly old enough today to be a player's parent without question I'm 50 (laughs) years old okay I have more more in common with coaches today than I'll ever have with players that ship sailed for me (laughs) but the one thing you know that I I do believe and you know I'm not saying that I can call LeBron and get him on the phone or call LeBron's people today but I would just say that I think that's one thing that LeBron's appreciated about you know the relationship that I may have with him and and the group he works with is that you know, I've just tried to be me from the very first day that I, you know, interviewed him when he was with Cleveland during, you know, Cavs 1.0 in the LeBron era. And and I think that you know has worked for me, but I also think it works for other people in, in other ways as well. And, and that's sort of my advice uh, when we're trying to, you know, work work in and dig. In and, you know, find some stories in today's NBA. Uh, but it does help. Look, the relationships matter. If someone's going to call me from somewhere and share something with me or someone's going to say, hey, do you know this about this story? Uh, you know, I can get this person on the phone for you. Uh, that's all important in developing your sources and, and keeping these relationships uh,
0: intact. Lockdown Women's Basketball is the only daily podcast covering the world of women's hoops. The only one. You can join an all-star cast of hosts every day of the week for a comprehensive look at the worlds of the WNBA, women's college basketball, international competition, everything that you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe to Locked On Women's Basketball on your favorite podcast provider.
2: You mentioned being critical, and sometimes the fallout that comes associated with that. I'm curious when the last time you wrote something that was a criticism in which you sort of bristled at the idea that oh, I might have to deal with some fallout from this story.
1: All right, I, I, you can go back and look at recent stories, and you can maybe find one uh, where you would know. But it, it, the guy still ticked at me today, um, <laughs> and, and so I wrote something recently, and and I got and I got a call, and the person wasn't happy with the way I characterized the story. I felt comfortable with the people I had talked to. So it it wasn't like I felt I was on shaky ground with my sources. Um, But I know this much. And I I think this comes to, you know, what I sort of said in passing earlier is that you have to show your face. Now, obviously today it's a little bit different, but if you write something critical of a player and I learned this early as well, um, you know, Back when I was in college, I had people who sort of showed me the way. If you write something critical, show your face in the locker room the next day. Mm -hmm. You know, let people see you. um, Let people have their say. Um, It's not always going to be pleasant. And this goes back to the idea of you're not friends with these people. Um, You're covering them as part of your job. Um, You know, there's a relationship aspect of it. But sometimes they're going to be unhappy with what you write. And that's okay. Uh, But if you do show your face if you do let them have your say, if you do have a solid standing on your own to go back at the person and explain why you wrote what you wrote, most people in this business on the other side are self-aware enough to let it go. And that's it. It's part of the the cost of doing business um, in the NBA or in, in journalism itself. And, you know, both sides sort of you know, live with what is written. Uh, each person gets their say. Uh, but, you know, if you're a person enough to stand there and, you know, take what they have to say and understand that that person is, you know, not going to hold it against you the next day, or maybe maybe they have their moments of being ticked off at you for a week. But that following week, everything's going to be fine. I know something about the NBA during the pandemic. The NBA was irate, most irate with me that I felt they've been in my 10-plus years covering the league. I had to deal with it. The person who was ticked at me was ticked at me for a couple days, and we still have conversations. Um, The person isn't holding uh, it against me. Is it denying giving me assistance when I need it? Um, and that's how these relationships work if you're a professional on both sides of it you find a way to make it work
0: all right so when you were starting off as a professional you wrote they played not on a field but on a pitch a mighty plush green pitch in fact july 1994 in the port huron times herald do you remember what you were writing about So, I'm going to guess that I'm writing about
1: the soccer surface inside the Silverdome that was probably designed by field and turf management designers at Michigan State.
0: You might be right, but at least what I'm reading is it was a U19 (laughs) soccer match at Memorial Stadium. So, at
1: Memorial Stadium, that I would not – that I'm trying – Uh, think about what now that wouldn't have been it i may have been writing a column about a soccer match at the world cup somewhere else but it also reminds me i saw a thread on a sort of sports journalism insider uh site uh message board that uh what's the most cringeworthy thing you've ever written and i think noah you may have uh just uh, discovered it come on come on no (laughs) way <laughs> but uh, uh, look, here, here's the deal, there, and you guys know this: what what you write in 1994 when you're 24 years old is not going to be what you write in 2020 when you're 50 years old, or 2010 when you're 40, so on and so forth. If you're not growing uh, in this business and, and you learn things, that you may have seen recently on Twitter, and I know to some degree that USA Today, uh, over the course of years, has been made fun of for being big paper. But you go write, or you go listen and read some of the great writers of our time. Mm -hmm. Stephen King. If you read Stephen King on writing, one of the first things he does is chop out every adverb that he sees, okay? I've been down a Norman MacLean rabbit hole after rereading A River Runs Through It recently. An economy of words. Even if you work at the New Yorker, Sports Illustrated, everyone needs an editor. And your goal, whether you're writing five thousand words or five hundred words, is to pack in as much information in those five thousand or five hundred words and make every word count, so that the reader is getting value in investing that for investing the reader's time into something you write. And, and so, you know. Um, I think Norman McLean's dad, Scottish preacher, um, told him, you know, basically, in essence, don't be afraid to sacrifice a word for the betterment of the story. And so when you're younger, you do want to get caught up and you know, uh, the, you know, the, the 10 cent words and the flower vocabulary mm-hmm. and, you know, explaining things. And that's all fine. But, uh, you know, I think the older you get, uh, you know, when when you're telling uh, stories with sort of nouns, firms, and some well-placed adjectives, um, you're doing it the right way.
2: Earlier this year, Noah had tweeted out uh, a link to a podcast we had done with Eddie Johnson. After Eddie told us the story about Illinois beating Magic Johnson and Michigan State on a buzzer beater, you responded to Noah's tweet by saying, This season made me fall in love with basketball forever and ever. I know you're a Michigan State guy. What was your fondest Magic Johnson at Michigan State memory?
1: I would just say that I became enamored at that
2: time, and the the, the other half of this duo deserves a lot of credit. And,
1: and again, some basketball historians will really chime in uh, on this one. But Magic Johnson to Greg Kelser, an alley-oop pass made me see basketball in, in such a different way. Um, and, and and along those lines, it sort of coincides with my, you, you know, the, the next, along with Magic and those, the Michigan State team, my fascination with Julius Erving it probably coincides with all of that and what those players were able to do with the basketball, especially when it came to airborne activity. Um, and I know Magic's certainly known for his passing, and that has its own creative side as well. But I, I think that's really I, – I was just fascinated by seeing the basketball move the way it did uh, from player to player. And, you know, so at that time, the 78-79 season, uh, you know, Michigan State didn't get off to a, a great start. Um, there may even have been some talk that Judd Heathcote's job uh, was in danger, you know. He had magic, uh, you know. That they played well the year before, um, and I, I just, you know, at eight, nine years old, I just, I remember watching that season. Now, can I give you exact remembrances of the Eddie Johnson game? I cannot, but can I tell you I was glued to the TV during the NCAA tournament and that there was a special allowance made by my parents to let me watch uh, Final Four and National Championship games um, that year, certainly was. And, and so, you know, those are the sort of things that stand out to me when it comes to, you know, my love of basketball. Uh, and and it, it really never went away uh, in, in terms of, you know, how much I enjoy uh, watching the game and for a long time, uh playing the game. I'm no good. But I do love or and I did love playing the game. Uh, you know, whether it was somewhat serious in high school, whether it was even a little bit serious in I am basketball while you're in college, uh, and then even pick up ball, you know, until your body sort of gave out on you in terms of doing those things and mm-hmm. you know, you were getting schooled by people you know half your age um that you can no longer do it at the local yeah. gym the way you wanted to those are i mean I, I you know and basketball has brought me so much enjoyment, uh, both personally and professionally, and you know it, it it'll be with me all my life
0: in just a few more moments, Jeff, and got a few to that aren't necessarily all connected, but this one is to the the personal joy that has brought you. your dad being a high school basketball coach. Can you think back on one of, if not his most memorable victory? Uh, I cannot think of his, but what here's what
1: stands out to me with this: my feeling of belonging in a locker room, being in a layup line, uh, you know, before a practice uh, with the guys on my dad's team. um, That environment, that that's what I remember. Particular games. Not so much, Mm -hmm. but the environment of what team was, what coaching was. Um, I I thought about something. We were doing during the pandemic. We were doing some exercises in our sports staff about, you know, why you fell in love with sports. My dad as a a coach. One of the things I fell in love with, and you guys uh, can laugh about this a little bit. My wife will laugh about it to a certain degree on a different angle. Is I've always been enamored with gear. Okay, uniforms. I loved uniforms. When my dad was coaching, uh, I think it was freshman baseball, and he would bring home the catcher's equipment. I <laughs> oh, loved putting on a chest protector, me too. Uh, the face, the, the mask, and, mm-hmm. and and the the pads. I, I loved it all, like and the catcher's glove that was different from a shortstop's glove. Like I, I, I just soaked it all in, uh, you know, and. That now those are the things I really uh remember about it. And you know, again, those are things I'll take with me uh my entire life. And I also, you know, Noah and Adam give my parents a, a a a lot of like they were incredibly supportive parents in whatever I wanted to pursue. And so when you talk about like I know you've some questions about Fort Here, I remember reading the Detroit Free Press as a kid before school uh you know in, in front of the t i I would eat my cereal on the floor in front of the t v with the newspaper sprawled out in front of me
2: mm-hmm. like
1: my parents always remember that reading sports <laughs> Illustrated with my dad um he would go through it, hand it to me, like reading and writing um like I was never very good in the sciences and math, and that's a bummer to my dad, who was a math teacher um but you know the the writing and the reading. I mean that was fostered um to go do what you want with it uh at, at every point um in my life and there was always books and newspapers um available to me um throughout my childhood and, and teens and you know uh, some of my favorite christmas gifts uh, you know even in college, though and Adam when my mom would get me the best American sports writing anthology. Mm-hmm. Man, I would just that, that was that was what I wanted. I, I mm-hmm. you know, and, and and here's another thing, you know, you guys are asking some some writing questions and being true to who you are. I think all of us at certain point. I probably date myself a little bit, but you know, reading. I know Howard Beck mentioned this the other day on Twitter when he said that he was going to work at Sports Illustrated. He mentioned Frank Deford. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, reading Frank Deford i uh, reading Jack McCollum. Um it, it, anyone else in sports Australia, I'm sure I'm gonna leave out some names. SL Price, um, at the Detroit Free Press and Detroit News, when you're talking about columnists Charlie Vincent and Shawnee Strother and uh uh Mitch Album. I mean think about Mitch Album in the mid nineteen to late nineteen eighties and he's writing mm-hmm. for the Detroit Free Press. I mean, you know, he, he was the star sports writer, sports columnist at the time there comes a certain point when you realize that you're not going to be Frank DeFord. You don't write like that. You're not going to write like that. And you know what? That's okay. You know, learn who you are and do what you do. And if that means not being Frank DeFord, that's perfectly fine. But if you can carve out a a job in this industry and, and make it have a good run at it, you're doing pretty well for yourself and so you know there are writers older than me who I'm never going to write like and you know what one Adam there are writers younger than me that I'm never going to write like who are, who are just better writers I mean it's just fact you don't have to have jealousy or envy or anything like that but just know that that's the case but know that if you do this for a long time that you're still doing pretty well for yourself
2: that is awesome. That's awesome. Well, they they may not mention how plush the pitch was, though, too. So there's that. Uh, Jeff, I just have two more for you. Uh, yeah. Who are your favorite personalities to cover in the league right now? Boy, I mean, look,
1: I've always enjoyed covering LeBron um, for a variety of different reasons. I think the older I get, you, you know, look, this is as close, and, and I think this, like, think about the people who did cover. 80s basketball, like Jack McCallum, and he's covering the South Bird Celtics and Magic Laker, and it extends to the Jordan Bulls. Like that's how I feel, you know, covering LeBron. Like th- th- this is the one guy who comes along, uh, and, and if you're lucky enough uh, to have an up close seat, I think I was talking. I've never, I haven't covered every LeBron playoff game, but I, I, I was, uh, you know, having this conversation with Sam. I think I am the only reporter, now that they did it in a bubble, who is uh, – I I take that back – not the only reporter, maybe the only sort of Prince-centric reporter who has covered every LeBron championship. I think Rachel Nichols uh, has been there uh, for his four championships as well, because she was inside the bubble uh, as well. I've always enjoyed covering him. You know, I've always enjoyed Dwayne Wade. I know he's not in the league anymore, but I I felt there was – a openness and honesty and insight into Dwayne Wade's quotes that were really refreshing when he really wanted to um, sit down and talk with you in that regard. Um, another, in some of these, you guys, it's also colored by, you know, who you've been able to craft these relationships with. and always gives you a moment of time, no matter what it is. Uh, in today's NBA, I really enjoy covering Kyle Lowry. I enjoy covering Fred VanVleet as well for for a whole set of different reasons. Kyle Korver is one of my favorite guys in the league. And this is just a short story. Uh, One time, you know, I was going to do something on Korver's three-point shooting when he he was with the Atlanta Hawks. After the game, the conversation just started taking off, and Korver said, well, hey, I'm going to text you some things on the way uh, to the airport. They were taking off for somewhere. And that just started a conversation that led to how Corver approaches three-point shooting. That's one of my favorite stories that I've done in the work and effort that he puts in to always improving his shot. And it's always changing. I followed up with him some years later with the Cleveland Cavaliers when he was playing alongside LeBron. And his idea of shooting evolved to where we told, or we told that story in a little bit different way. And so those are some of the things that you know when I think about covering. The league now, are, are there some dynamic personalities when you talk about you know what's going on with James Harden right now? That's intriguing. What's going on with Giannis Antetokounmpo and whether or not he can get it done after he signed the extension with Milwaukee? I think those things are always going to be part of the NBA. It's what the NBA has really thrived on uh, for the past decade and sort of this age of you know player empowerment and know, players either teaming up or going where they want to play. I'm super fascinated uh by Kyrie and Kevin Durant this year. Um and you know, I think covering them uh you know it is both a challenge but it's it's also a lot of fun watching them play and so those are a couple that you know stick out off the top of my head.
2: I love it. We spent a lot of time obviously on this on this interview asking you about some of your, your toughest moments your your scariest moments what was your best day
1: Ooh, that's a great question adam and you know um I, I i can look at this um a variety of ways um if like look i i, I don't want this to be a cliche either but i i think meeting my wife like you know, the, I'll, I'll share a story that, uh, it, it, again, sort of chokes me up, but, like, to, to find someone. Um, after my first chemo treatment, I called her from work and I told her that I don't think I'm feeling well. And this ended up being a couple nights stay in the hospital for me because I could not stop getting sick. It it, it was an awful night. and. My wife is holding a bucket. And, and I I guess when you go through all these things about, you know, what love is, no one ever mentions that love is holding the bucket that your husband is getting sick in and that's splashing up in your face. Okay? And, and I know there's some humor in that. But, man, is there a ton of love in there? and And, and to have her alongside me through this like I, I don't get from here to there without her that no, there's just no question about it someone who fought for me um you know when I talk about finding the right doctors Noah when you ask that question mm-hmm. well my wife is fighting for every inch of my life just as much as I am in in, in some different ways and so you know being forever grateful um for that um But, like, on a note that maybe isn't, like, you know, as touching, but, like, when you find out that your immunotherapy medicine is shrinking a tumor and that sort of, like, after chemotherapy didn't work and you're wondering what is going to work for you, and then you get this drug that's relatively new, just approved by FDA, approved by the FDA, it's been in trial and it works for you, and you find out that your cancer has stopped growing. And then in the next scan you find out your cancer is shrinking. And then someday you find out that there's no evidence of disease. Those those days are are, are just wonderful. Um, And, and, you know, I share them with everyone. Uh, And I'm not saying this, you know, I can get carried away on this. And I'm always uh, reticent to name names because I'm, you know how people get to the Academy Awards and they're fearful
2: <laughs> of leaving
1: someone out. Right. That's how I feel because they're, they're, they're countless. They're places near and far. Um, and, and I'll say this just because he's on the pod and I won't name anyone else, but Noah's frequent check-ins to ask just how I'm doing. Like, like, like that, that that stuff is, is invaluable to you. And, and you know it, 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 sometimes they came from people out of the blue uh and, and at some point in my life I'm hoping that I can get to a point where I can mention all of them and I still feel like I would miss someone um as well and then I guess I'll just follow it up I know I mentioned fly fishing if I'm on a stream and whether it's in Yellowstone National Park or just outside the park or whether I'm in Colorado and I'm out somewhere beautiful catching a cutthroat trout on a dry fly like that that's also as good as my life gets mm-hmm. as well and, and th- that's a beautiful moment for me and you have all kinds of feelings of you know that you're just part of something larger and, and, and bigger than yourself and i know i'm starting to tread into bill walton territory here um <laughs> with that kind of stuff but i mean it You know, those are those are the days for me, Um, you know. And look, I'll I'll acknowledge there's some, you know, those are personal things. But look, there are days when you know you write a better story than you have another time. And those moments are incredibly important um, to me as well. Um, You know, I know we didn't talk about this a lot work was tremendous during my work days of cancer, both as a entity, USA Today was great, but the idea that I had something to distract me from days, that, is, that was wonderful. I, I mean, I needed it. I, I needed something to, to do. Um, sitting there, lost in your thoughts on whether or not you, you know you have a certain amount of time to live is not a way to live. And work helped me get through that, it, it, as well as a bunch of other people you know, who helped me, um, uh, as well. And, you know, I know we're starting to wrap up, uh, forever be grateful, um, for, it. Uh, the, the word, you know, I know I said grateful, but th- I think even a better word is, is there's gratitude, um, it's such deep appreciation uh, of the human spirit. I won't go too far in, into a realm that the environment we're dealing with. You, you wonder, do people, you know, get alone? Um, you, you know, what's happening to humanity? Um, you know, I, I I will say that I've I found the very best of it at times.
0: Let's be clear here. Allison cannot change a tire. <laughs> 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 now, yeah, so, so here's
1: the deal. And I'm like this, too. I was not going to change a tire in those conditions either. And, <laughs> and so those of us who don't know how to do something or can't do something are not going to do it with, with the sleet on a highway. In the <laughs> middle of the night, you call someone to do it. It's just the best way to do it if you can.
0: Jeff, we appreciate you being so open. And here's to today being better than yesterday and tomorrow being better to today. Thanks so much, pal.
1: Nah, Adam and Noah, thanks for being on and in, in, in indulging some of this. So, um, I hope it can help. Whenever I tell people this, um, you know, it, it, it's so that, look, if they ever feel symptoms, if they ever have a family history, Uh, Don't ignore them. Go get them checked out because early detection uh, on a lot of things is your best way to extend your life.
0: Yeah, A few times I had to hit mute so that me getting choked up didn't impact how Jeff would continue his answer. And I, I do wish he didn't feel the need to say, sorry for getting carried away here or anything like that. It was it was it was emotional and as he said at the very end that he hopes that this helps somebody else and we do too
2: that's what it comes down to and and no it's it's wild i mean you have this close relationship with him i hadn't met him before this this discussion and i was choked up throughout um and just an inspiration and and you you say it all the time so i was kind of embarrassed even asking the question about perspective you say all the time, oh, if you don't have perspective before this life changing event happens, like what, what's wrong with you anyway? But, but in this case, understanding his perspective where it really has been a, a situation of life and death and the way that he stared it down and continued to prosper and be so optimistic and so grateful, uh, it, it really is an inspiration. And I, I, I you know, I, I'm going to take this interview with me for, for quite
0: some time. I can tell you that much. Check out everything else on the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked on NBA is five days a week. Locked on fantasy hoops with Josh Lloyd is we're now in the NBA season, which is hard to believe. You're going to want to follow Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd before you set your lineup every day. Hollinger and Duncan, John Hollinger, Nate Duncan, their unique takes. Locked on bets. Win some cash this NBA season. And your team every day, all 30 teams every single day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. We're on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam's on Twitter at Naismith lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.